You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with Dana Sherwood. Dana, thanks so much for being with me today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. Dana, we're going to talk about your show that's up now. So first, congratulations on your show at Denny Dimon, um, which is the Cake Eaters. We're talking on July 7th, and this show is running through August 12th. Um, let's talk about this show. It's a pretty exciting show, right? There's, there's several different kinds of work in here, and, um, and it's a show that's, that's yeah, that, that's running through the summer, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's um, running through um, August 12th at Denny Dimon Gallery, which is on Lisbonard Street in Tribeca, New York City. And it is my third show with the gallery, so I've been working with them since 2016. And I'm showing a new body of work that I began this kind of series of animals with women inside of the animal bodies in about late 2019. So it's kind of like an ongoing series, and then it evolved into ceramics. So it's oils and watercolor paintings as well as ceramics, and also I do video. And, and, and so to talk about like the evolution of where this, this all began, because you just mentioned 2019 and in 2021 you were also talking about, um, I was reading you know, the, the phrase, what if I didn't have a mother or, or what if I had a horse for a mother, didn't have a you know, mm-hmm. human mother. Uh, is, is, is that part of what you're saying in, in 2019 where this narrative comes from with um, you know, your relationship to animals essentially? Yeah, so it's been like an evolution over the last 10 years, I would say. When I started in 2010 making um, videos where I would set out feasts outdoors and set up these kind of motion sensor trail cameras and film animals eating in the dark. And so I could, you know, talk at great length about all of the experiences that I had with animals eating or not eating and showing up and not showing up and doing things that I never expected. And, um, you know, my, my travels in this body of work have ranged from South Africa to Brazil to Denmark to the United States and so and everywhere, you know, in between. And I just became so uh, affected by how much I had learned from watching animals over a decade and how that uh, affected my artistic practice, and also how that could carry over into my daily life as well. So I started, I was writing an essay, this is going back, I guess, 2019, about eating in the dark. And so I started to kind of pose this question to myself, you know, what if I didn't have a human mother? In terms of what I've learned from watching animals eating in the dark, it's kind of like a whole new breadth of, of knowledge that I, that I didn't get from my human upbringing. And so I started to kind of fantasize and imagine, you know, for me, my, my first go-to animal is the horse. And I, I did some work about horses, and there's a video about horses in the cake eaters right now. Um, and so I kind of went throughout my, um, my cosmography of, of animals that mean something to me. So snails, raccoons, um, horses, and swans, and so they're animals that have kind of played a role in my work over the years and also my, my life going back to my early childhood. And so I was imagining what would it be like 
if, if I had been raised by, you know, you know, and how did these animals contribute to my experience and knowledge in, in this lifetime? I love that. It's, it's, it's such a kind of fantastic journey to, to be on, and I, I love that, um, that path and way of exploring. To talk about one of the works in the show, it's called Inside the Belly of the Reindeer, and we can talk about some of the, the other horse, horse um, imagery, if you want, which you were just mentioning, but, uh, but to jump into that, mm-hmm. which, is, which is not a photograph, it's oil and panel, um, tell me a little bit about that, because now you, you're talking about kind of the genesis of this, but in a, in a painting like this, for example, the ideas are getting much more advanced. You, what you learn from the animals now seems to be something that's, um, that's moving into you know, symbols, but also uh, lessons and things that aren't easy to translate so, um, or, for, or for me to digest immediately. So it's a, uh, can you tell me a little bit more about, about that image, Inside the Belly of the Reindeer, and what the, what the narrative is now? Yeah, so, um, so you know, I, I live in the Northeast, and I grew up in the Northeast, and so I've always had, um, you know, a relationship to, to deer, you know, the white-tailed deer that lives in the Northeastern part of, of the United States, and I've done a body of work where I was um, filming in, invited to make a video in Denmark and I did a little test run with the American white-tailed deer and everything went according to plan, very smooth. I put the the food out, they ate, and then, um, you know, I was invited to work in Denmark and they they wanted me to maybe try and find a more elusive animal like a wolf. And I I was like, no, I really want to work with deer because you know, this is an animal that we encounter every day. Like, I'm very much interested in animals that can even be considered pests. And if you garden in the Northeast, you know that deer are pests. And so they said, oh, that's so boring. Like, you can't do a piece about the deer. They're, they're so domesticated here. They'll eat right out of your hand. And I was like, well, that would be fantastic. I would just love that. <laughs> and so... I went there expecting to have this very easy, you know, project where I would put the food out and the deer would almost be like performing for me because they would just play right into my hand. And of course, what happened was the exact opposite. I couldn't get them to come anywhere near the food. And this is a different species of deer. It was red tail, European red-tailed deer, which were nearly extinct until um, there was like some land set aside. And over 20 years, they regained a very robust population of deer, so much so that they were, you know, they were considering them almost domesticated. But really, they weren't. And this was like a project for me where it was like a total sale. And I, I, I was like, what am I going to do? You know, I'm expected to make a, a work for this exhibition, and I can't get anything to to work the way that I want it to and I was alone in this very remote area for 10 days and so I started just kind of talking to myself with a selfie stick and my video kind of evolved out of my failure and to me that was such a turning point in my practice where I realized you know what it's not about animals behaving the way that we expect them and, and as humans we we think we're so clever we'll put the food out and the animals they just can't resist you know, they're, they're powerless over my, you know, my idea, my bright ideas. And um, I just thought this was so beautiful, this moment where nature, you know, really shows, like, do you think you know everything? You don't know. <laughs> you think you're in control. Right. You're not in control. And um, 
And so that's where the reindeer comes from. It's really an important animal for me in my practice because it, and then that's when I, it really shifted for me at that moment in Denmark where I thought there's something more to be gained here than just, you know, making tea parties for animals. And um, so that's like a, a major animal. It's an iconographic animal in my pantheon of, of things I've learned from animals. Um, yeah. So yeah, and I, then, lo- I love um, that story. So, so, yeah, so then go further into that painting inside the belly of the reindeer now that, that you've been discussing. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's also um, a woman um, sitting down. There's all, all different kinds of objects in there. And, um, yeah. And then there's an enormous amount of eyes everywhere. On the, it looks like on the trees, in her hair, um, and on other objects. Mm-hmm. And this is all within a kind of, looks like a vision she's having, an almost rainbow vision within this, yeah, reindeer's body. So, um, and then there's also objects yeah. all around and th- that are also look like uh, cakes or, or, or something as well mm-hmm. as eyes, which is, yeah, com- complex. Um, yeah, so the, um, initially the figures began as self-portraits, and then I was like, this is, you know, this is not just about me. So I started kind of incorporating um, friends and family members, so that's why the, the figures ended up, you know, kind of changing over time. Well, very quickly it became clear that I was like, I'm, you know, this isn't just self-portraiture. But, um, but the idea of cake is really important for me because, to me, it represents liminal time and liminal space because cake isn't something that, especially these kind of grand cakes that I'm picturing in the paintings, they're not the kind of thing you eat on, the, on a daily basis. You know, they're, they mark celebrations, rituals, uh, birthdays, you know, major important events to me. So I feel like when the cake comes out, it's somehow we're not in ordinary time anymore. So it symbolizes to me this this idea of, of liminal time and liminal space where almost anything could happen. Um, you know, like we're not playing by the rules anymore. And the eyes represent um, our, our gut knowledge, our gut knowing and intuition. So that's why the eyes are in all of the paintings. You know, it's this kind of, you know, uh, I've done a, I've done a, a whole piece about vision and, and other sorts of vision. So I, I think of the eyes and the trees as like this kind of the intuitive knowledge of, of plants and animals and um, and our own like innate knowledge that doesn't revolve around the world. What we can see, touch, hear, smell, and see with our you know eyes in our heads. But other, but this kind of other intuitive, intuitive um, and instinctual seeing and knowing the world and experiencing the world, and you know, and this kind of ties back into the idea of the of the reindeer and my experience with the deer in Denmark, which is you know you have to sometimes you just have to throw the plans out the window and just go with your intuition and see where it leads you, and you know you don't know. It's this idea of seeing in the dark, you know. Um, you know, I did all these works where I'm filming animals at night in the dark, and I just love this metaphor of, like, how do we negotiate when we don't know where we're going and we don't know where the path leads and, um, and how that's kind of terrifying, but also, it, you know, with art making especially, I feel like you can't, you have, you have to kind of go where it leads you. You have to take a risk and just trust yourself a little. Yeah, I, I so agree, and it's, it's, it's so... While that's such a truth, it's also 
hard to kind of get there by just going there, right? I mean, what happened in Denmark was great, yeah. the idea of, no, you can't do that here, you can do that here. And, and um, yeah, I, I, really, I really like the way you articulated that. To, to speak about, I mean, there's a few mediums, of course, in this show, and to talk about um, one other, there's the urn to hummingbirds uh, and cucumbers, mm-hmm. which is ceramic. So, you know, there's photographs mm-hmm. and paintings, and this is... Um, a ceramic urn. Can you tell me about this? Because this also has some of the eye imagery on it, but we're talking specifically about hummingbirds and, and cucumbers. So what's happening here? Because that's such a specific reference. Yeah. So um, in 2020, my partner and I, Mark Dion, he's also an artist, um, we made a pollinator pavilion for the Thomas Cole House, which is in Catskill, New York. And what it is is it's a, it's a you know, gigantic gazebo, and it's a gazebo where you can go, and it's painted in bright colors, the color of flowers that are, uh, attract pollinators like hummingbirds and bees and butterflies. And so you go and you sit there and you have this experience where there's hummingbirds and bees and butterflies literally whizzing right by your face. And... Um, I was so like overcome by this experience and how every time I would go there, I would see hummingbirds and it was just so magical. And, but you know, not everybody, including myself can have a giant gazebo at their, you know, in their backyard. So I wanted to make something smaller and more accessible. So I also, I have a a garden here where I live in upstate New York and um, I started planting all of these plants that attract, hummingbirds and butterflies and bees to my vegetable garden and my vegetable garden especially my cucumbers were just like bursting out of the garden they had so much success that year and I really kind of recognized that if you support the local insects and birds and pollinator population you're going to get better crops you know um and the cucumbers in particular, and I have a little bit of a tricky situation where I'm living, um, where I get a lot of shade, and so the cucumber, or the tomatoes never do well, and the eggplant never does well, but the cucumbers, you know, they're like <laughs> really bountiful. So I wanted to kind of acknowledge the intelligence of the plants and the intelligence of the insects and the birds, and also kind of like be like, thank you, cucumbers, for being so prolific and so bountiful in my garden. And so that pot gets planted with um, pollinator plants that are gathered from my property here. So there's mint and hyssop and um, all different kinds of flowering plants that grow and support pollinators. So potentially those plants would also be I mean, if I if I understood correctly, cut and put in this urn. I mean, I know you're. You, it's this pollinator garden, yeah, which is a part of the ecosystem that's that's um, so important. But that urn also is is a carrier for some of those idea, or because it, yeah. it seems kind of like a like it like an homage to everything you're saying, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, and then it's kind of designed like a strawberry pot, so where you can actually use it as a plant and you uh, a planter, and then you can have it out in your space and it will support the bees and the local pollinator population. And then it'll support, the, it'll, 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 it'll support the pollinator <laughs> population because, I mean, just to get this straight because it's so interesting, this is also an object that, that differs from the rest because 
you're you're actually using this object as um as a functional object, right? You it, it's a vase as as well as an urn, mm-hmm. and you can put flowers in it. It can function outdoors as um as a device that attracts bees and and pollinators and hummingbirds um in general. Is is that correct? Yes, exactly. Uh, and it's painted with the kind of similar um imagery as you find in the painting. So there's but there's uh so there's hummingbirds with small little women in them and then there's also cucumbers that have like these kind of women holding cakes inside the cucumbers. So um so that kind of imagery is carried over into the urn as well. As well as other pots of course that are in the show. There's I mean yeah. there's a lot in the show we, mm-hmm. we we haven't talked about it, but there's a number of objects like that, ceramic um and and then of course the paintings and then there's uh, projections and, and videos which are also in there which we touched on in the in the beginning of this mm-hmm. but um, but to talk a little bit about how all of these fit in because we have it those are those are the night images that you were talking about at the beginning right which is part of this mm-hmm. uh, part of how we come full circle in, in in the exhibition this kind of observation of animals and then there's this uh, talking about the pollinator world and then. And then, of course, of the of the, of the paintings of the unseen animal world and the, and the lessons. But to but to touch once more again on the, on the photos and come back to them, the projections, that seems to kind of bring people into that world most because you sit down, right, and you you really you exactly. watch these things. Yeah. So there's not it's not a there's no photography. There's no photos. It's just one eight minute video, um, and it's called Other Desert Landscapes. And so, in the the way that I try, you know, when I, when I can, when I have a, a space to present multiple facets of my process, I like to show a video because you're right. Like it draws you into the world and it gives you almost a direct experience that can kind of inform the way that you see the rest of the work. So this video I made um, and I filmed it in 2019 and it was for an exhibition that was postponed due to COVID. And so it was shown just this spring for the first time in Joshua Tree. It's filmed in Joshua Tree, California, or in uh, Yucca Valley, California. And I worked with um, a, an organization that, that rescues horses that have been abused and abandoned. And it's, a, it's like a one-woman operation. She takes them in. She rehabilitates them. She brings in a vet. She cares for them. She rehabilitates these horses. And then... Um, and then she finds people to adopt them and, and you know, care for them for the, the rest of their lives. And it's really this kind of beautiful reciprocal experience where the horses, of course, you know, and horses have such a long history um, with, you know, in a kind of a therapeutic modality for people who are, are um, recovering from trauma. And, um, you know, there's a horse therapy. Um, and also, if you've ever been around horses, or, or I guess if you if you enjoy being around horses, they are, it is therapeutic to be around um, horses, and certainly for me it is. And so, but at the same time, these are horses that are that are in need of help. So it's this kind of beautiful circular reciprocity of of caring for the horses, but the horses are also caring for the for the humans. And of course, it's set in this beautiful desert backdrop in, you know, Joshua Tree, Yucca Valley, which is just this, you know, magnificent, iconic desert out in California with the Joshua trees. And it's, it's filmed on this land 
And what I did was I made this banquet for the horses, kind of as a as a as an homage to the horses, thanks for the horses. And then there's also scenes where I'm working with um, energy work with horses and with these horses that have been brought in. So it, it kind of goes full circle, this idea of, um, of reciprocity between humans and animals. And, um, and then there's, you know, all of this layering of the plants and the sun and the desert and the location. And um, so, yeah, so that, and then it's scored um, with a, with a very specific soundtrack. And, and so tell me a little bit about that soundtrack because that sounds, that, that's so important too. Um, how is the soundtrack created or, or made to, mm-hmm. to intertwine with just what you're saying? Yeah, so the soundtrack was, is, is perform, composed and performed by Courtney Lane, who's a musician that I've known for over 20 years and have worked with um, on many projects. And um, she uses instruments from accordions to organs to drum machines. And in this case, it's like a, a synthesizer. And um, she's also somebody who has a, a vast experience with horses. But the, at the time of making the soundtrack, it was in March of 2020. So there was this incredible amount of, as you, as you remember, this kind of anxiety and tension, and um, I feel like that tension kind of carries over into the soundtrack, and it, it almost has a darkness to it, and then it kind of shifts as the video goes on, and it, you come to the scene of the banquet with the horses, and it kind of lightens, and it, it changes, but I, I feel like the soundtrack is such a product of this particular moment in history. I love that we, we talked about that because that is so interesting. And, uh, and I hope the listeners um, who hear this can come and see the show. I, I just wanted to make one distinction. Of course, there's a video in the show and, and, and paintings and ceramic work and, and a number of things. There are no photographs, though. Are there stills of this? Because I, I, as I, after I saw the show and I was researching it, there's stills of these images mm-hmm. of the video that you made. Yeah. But the stills aren't, yeah. aren't available on their own, are they? That's not... No. Okay. No. Good. Yeah. So congratulations on the show and, and, and congratulations on it, on it happening now. Um, I want to ask you one more question, which is uh, what are you reading at the moment? Well, I am reading a book called Fierce Poise that is about the life of Helen Frankenthaler. Um, I love reading artist biographies, and I had just recently finished reading the the wonderful, very, very uh, long book called Ninth Street Women, which is about the women of the um, abstract expressionist movement in New York from like 1920 to 19, you know, through the 60s. And so then I was kind of looking for another book that would take me even deeper into the world of these women and their experience in, you know, a really kind of hostile art world at the time. And so, um, yeah, I've always loved the work of Helen Frankenthaler, but um, you know, she also has a really interesting story and she's such a strong person. You know, I feel like um, reading about other artists is always kind of like food for, you know, for 
the practice and um, all the difficulties and challenges that one faces as an artist. Absolutely. Thank you for that, Dana. And thank you again for talking with me today. I really appreciate your time and your, and your current show. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. It was great to talk to you. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more.